out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Claire Hurst, a saxophonist who's been in the world of pop and jazz and is still performing and um, started out in, um, well, I think basically the first band was the Bell Stars, who obviously went on to great things with the clapping song and also Sign of the Times. No, not the Prince song. Um, this was the early 80s. And then went and worked with such people as Bonsky Beat, the Communards, but also played at Live Aid with David Bowie. There you go. Fantastic. But then has since worked with lots of other people, including um, Hazel O'Connor. And I think there's probably other people. Anyway, look, you'll find out more about this in the interview, hopefully. Um, so look, after several minutes of casual chat with Claire, which I've edited out because it was probably just a bit boring. And um, we got down to that uh, exciting subject that was the early formative years. Claire, it's over to you. Well, I think, I, like I said, I, I used to watch Top of the Pops, and that was... I lived in Cumbria, right? I grew up in Cumbria. And um, we were sort of in a dip, so we couldn't get any radio signal. So we could only get Radio 4. Right. And I, I heard this rumour that there was a channel that played pop music all the time. Um, but I could never hear it, you know. Oh, so the God. only thing I could do was watch Top of the Pops. So that was absolutely everything. Thursday and, um, at seven o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, it was, and, and they were, it was amazing. If you look back on all those ones, they had such great people on them. and such a wide variety of music, you know. Yes, it's quite bonkers. And then Pants It was people. absolutely mental. <laughs> yeah. Pants people doing brand new bicycle. <laughs> there was a strange one with dogs on. I remember there was one, I think it was... Um, they were choreographing this kind of whole dance routine with dogs. You know, they'd interpreted the, the lyrics of a particular song in a rather strange, in, interesting way. And I think they even did yeah. a Sex Pistols one once as well, which was a bit of a classic. So, um, and there was the Wurzels, the Combine Harvester. Yeah, that was those ones. Well, there was also those other weird ones. There was Teddy Savalas. There was something about, you know, Benny Hill. There was one where yeah. somebody was talking about and no change, this woman who had, uh, this wife, mother, I suppose, had been given this kind of bit of paper by the child to say, you owe me 20p, and then she rattles off for three minutes how much pain she had caused this child, but then had no charge. Can you remember that classic? Yeah, I do remember that. And the one about... It was like Johnny Cash or someone it was, like it was kind of an odd one. Yeah, yeah. And then there, there was another one about the pack of cards, where the guy was in the church with a pack of cards, and they said, right, that's it, you're going to go to prison for that. And he said, oh, these all represent a biblical character, and it's like, oh, okay. So it was, there were some really strange songs in my time. Really bizarre, yeah. But um, Space Oddity, that, when that came on, I, I loved that song. I yes, just, that I was is. transfixed by that. And I, so then I, I went and, because I lived in a very small town, you had to send away, it was a bit like now really, a bit like Amazon, you would send away and send the postal order or, or check even. And then, and then your record would turn up later on in the post, it's very exciting times. Yeah. <clears throat> I did that in the 80s with flexi discs, which were quite sweet really. Yeah. You know, yeah. you always really. this band and give the address and you quickly scribble it down and yeah. I'd get your mum or go to the post office and get a post lord and say, could you, you know, for £1.20 and, and think yeah. I'll never see it again. But then suddenly something appeared, so that was fantastic. This keeps going off, actually. Oh, it's my lead because it keeps going. Oh. Oh, no. These... <laughs> right, yeah, that's better. I won't move anything. This is back. Yeah, so that's 
Fantastic. So, so when did me? When did you start to play an instrument? Oh, I always played. My brother had piano lessons from when he was quite young, and he was just a little bit older than me. So I would just go and copy what he was doing, you know. So he'd finish practicing, and I'd be there working it all out. And then, so eventually, my parents said, "Well, maybe you will learn as well." It's like, "Oh yes, okay." And I had this horrible piano teacher who, um, I was really young. I was about six or something, and she. Every time I made mistakes, she had this very long pencil. She used to poke me with the pencil. <laughs> and um, if it was sunny and people were playing outside, she'd say, wouldn't you rather be playing outside in the sun? And I'd be like, no, <laughs> I want to learn how to play the wow. piano. Anyway, That's eventually, nice. yeah, horrible. She was, it was like really weird. But I was in the countryside, so you didn't have much choice, you know. Anyway, eventually I got a much nicer teacher and, and I stuck with her. So you stuck with playing piano? Yeah, and then I started on piano, then um, clarinet, flute, and all that. But I really wanted, after I saw, I don't know if it was something by David Bowie, one of the albums, and I, I oh, I know, you know the picture of him with the brown suit and the orange hair? Yeah. Playing the saxophone, yeah. yeah. So I'd had the, the three three weeks double page pull out from Jackie, you know, put on the wall. <laughs> Yeah, that was the soul period, wasn't it, that one? Yeah, that's what I wanted. I I just wanted to play that instrument, and I heard it on one of the records. It was like, well, that's what I'm going to play. Absolutely. So really, all my life after that was just designed to get hold of a saxophone. Which is quite a major moment, isn't it? Because it's not the sort of thing... Yeah, on so many levels. Because actually, interesting enough, he, you know, obviously played saxophone, but he also appeared on these San... Uh, Steely Span, Steely Span track, which was to know him, <laughs> love him, um, which was written, I think, by that mad producer Phil Spector, um, ah. and, and produced by Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, who um, once, you know, he was producing that particular album, which I think was quite a big one, and he knew that David sort of could play saxophone, so do you want to just be able to um, sort of come down? And he did. He just turned up, played it, and went off. And, uh, it's quite interesting because I've been um, recently recreating or recreating or playing some of his songs, which are all fascinating and they're equally not simple at all. They all have these little pitfalls in them. So you've got to learn them pretty well because you can end up sounding very wrong otherwise. <laughs> but actually, he plays on loads of his tracks. Just in the background, you hear the saxophone. I hadn't realised that he played on loads of his recordings. Even when he has people like David Sanborn playing the main bits, you'll hear, you, I can tell it's him playing. You know, <laughs> but what he plays, it's not very necessarily very complex, but it's really right and it's really unusual. It's not what a, like a trained player would play, really. It's interesting, right. it's got fantastic ears, yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so did the saxophone come quite easily to you, sort of playing-wise? Yeah, if you've ever played the clarinet, Matt, I can tell you the saxophone's easy. Yes. So, <laughs> when, so when did things start changing, you know, because often people say, you know, punk happened and then suddenly everything kind of was a big moment because up to then there was a bit of glam, there was a bit of rock, there was a bit of prog rock and then sort of like, oh my god, right, punk's happened, I could, I might be able to do this. I just wondered if you had a another moment as you got towards your late teens. Um, well, I uh, had um, seeing I'd moved moved to York first of all. So I was born in Cumbria. I moved to York, and uh, then I moved to Leeds. And I'd seen this advert for this band wanting a sax player. And I saw it first of all when I was at home with my parents. I'd read it in the Yorkshire Post or something, you know. 
And then I saw it in the Melody Maker. And then I saw it in my local corner shop, the same advert. And I thought, this, this has got to be my job, right? Yes. Um, and that was in Leeds. And uh, at that time, I didn't have a saxophone, but I was going to get one. <laughs> and so I turned up for the audition with my clarinet, you know, and I said, well, I'm getting a saxophone, it'll be all right. And they went, oh, okay, you're in the band then. <laughs> <laughs> so which it was like that. It was just like that in those days. So on, Le- on the Leeds front, were you at university at that stage? or? No, I never went to university. I was just playing, playing gigs by then when I was 16 and just was making money from playing gigs. So I never stopped really after that. God, that's really I was full of it as long as it keeps going. And, uh... So Leeds in that period, they'd had bands like Girls at Our Best and then there was a lot of, I don't know, I'm just remembering more the, oh, the Mekons, weren't they? And then... Mekons, Gang of Four. The Gang, Gang of Four. Four. And then we had uh, the Sisters of Mercy and Chumbawamba and all the political kind of anarcho-punk bands that were yeah. developing out of there. Yeah. So which Leeds band was this? Um, yeah. Oh, I was, I was playing in, um, it was an all-girl band called Sphinx. <laughs> and we were just playing like Doors numbers and Michael Jackson numbers and just anything we wanted really. And we were just gigging around locally. Yes. And, and then... What period was that? Maybe it would be like round about the beginning of punk, yeah. Punk right. thing was all starting to kick off. Um, and, and that band, in fact, the bass player in that band was Sarah Lee, who went on to play with the B-52s and the Gang of Four, actually, and Robert Fripp. And she's had a fantastic career. Indigo Girls, she did that. Oh, my God. Oh, she did. Yeah, yeah, so that's quite interesting. So she was in my first band, yeah. Blimey, O'Reilly. And then from <laughs> Leeds, where did you go from there? Well, London, obviously. <laughs> Where would you go from there? London. And um, and I had, a, I suppose I had a couple of jobs, a couple of gigs with people. And then um, then I joined the Bell Stars. Right. Um, again, because I <laughs> I saw an advert, and everything used to be advertised in the, in the Melody Maker, in the job section at the back. And I thought, oh, saxophone player for the Bell Stars. I was like, mm. I don't know about that, but you know, I really feel like they've got a record deal. Maybe they can, you know, I felt like I needed to to have established myself. So I thought maybe maybe that's a good job. So I went to the audition. There was one other girl, and uh, they said to me, "When's your birthday? You know, what are you? What, what star sign are you?" I said, "Well, I'm a Leo." And they went, "That's it. You've got the job then." <laughs> and they're all they're all Leos or Virgos. So they just said, "Well, it's you then." <laughs> it was that random. It's so random. Really, that's one of the better ones. I've never heard of a, a sort of a job interview based on your star sign, actually. But there you um, go, and it obviously worked. <laughs> well, they'd got the record late. They they were on stiff records, weren't they? At that yeah, stage. yeah. But they hadn't had the big single. Oh, I joined just before we recorded the clapping song, and that right. was the first. The, uh, I think we recorded it, and then about a week later, I heard it on the radio. <laughs> that was it. Was like oh. And, and then, um, yeah, and then followed all the others. Crazy. Well, because interesting <laughs> enough, because, you know, and you probably know this more than anybody, but, you know, most bands have quite an interesting life cycle, don't they? You know, you could have one of those wildlife programs. You know, like the, the yes, get the honeymoon phase, which is always nice. And with the 80s indie bands, I seem to do, you know, there's the sort of 12 months, and especially during the early 80s, a lot of people were unemployed or on job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. So there was kind of youth as well as n- no bother, not, no one was worried about getting a job. And then, you know, getting the single, John Peel giving it a play, then John Peel session, yeah, first yeah. album, things are going so well. 
and then the touring, <laughs> then the second album, and then there's issues. To do then with. it all falls to pieces. <laughs> I don't think we ever put a second album out even. I think we just got to the first album. We recorded the second one. I don't think it ever came out, or it might have come out really recently. Right. Some kind of reissue thing, yeah. Well, the, I kind of realised <laughs> that 25 to 30 years, there's a lot of people been archiving stuff. I think it probably happens with every every scene you know things happen we all sort of think it's going to have to keep going forever but it doesn't it, it does change quite quickly yeah i thought we did quite well actually i think we did about five years which is really long for a pop band in those days yes um, but often it's the kind of there's a combination there's a lack of money there's the touring and i did notice that if any band ever toured america they they often would say we came back and split up because it just to finish us they never let us tour America for that reason, I think. I think they knew we wouldn't survive. <laughs> we, were always, we were quite, well, yeah, we got on really well. We had a really good time. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> and we and did tour a lot, but mostly in Europe. Well, we went to Japan and you know, a, few, a few places. And how did it, um, yes, I mean, what was the general, because obviously you couldn't move for sort of here in Sign of the Times. So when that yeah. kicked off, did that just change people's lives or their personalities? Well, no, it's funny you say that because nothing in our lives changed really because we had already been working and gigging and going everywhere and we, we were paid the same and we paid a weekly retainer of £50, um, which never went up in the entire time. So even though we were doing really well, we were still on the same money, which in some ways was good because it meant we got regular money, you know. Yes. But it really, it was never quite enough to live that lifestyle. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Not even in the 80s. Not even in those days, no. I think the goal was about £30. So you did get a bit more than most people. But yeah, um, just slightly more than that, yeah. But not your present benefit <laughs> um, <and> council tax. <laughs> so it never, it never really was life-changing in that way. And also because there's seven people in the band, so if anyone started to get a bit above themselves, the other six would just pull them back down quickly, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> And how did you get on with Stiff Records? Was that okay? Because that's... Um... Yeah, they were great for us in many, many ways. You know, he, he just did what he wanted, Dave. You know, said, oh, you're doing this now, girls, you know. And if he didn't like it, no, you're not doing that. So, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much whatever he thought. He had a good eye, obviously. And I used to say to him stuff like, well, do you, you know, Sign of the Times, do you like that song? And he went, oh, you like anything that's making you money. <laughs> <laughs> You learn to love anything that's making you money. Yes, I see. Great. <laughs> yes. So did that um, so what was was it 85 then the band split up? I suppose it was around eight. Yes. Yeah. Was that Live Aid 1985? It was Live Aid. Things have yeah. changed. I mean during that so, time, Yeah, it would have been 1984 we split up, I think, then because I wasn't in that band then. But yes. it was just after the So how did it did you all have a meeting or did you just all stop? up at rehearsals. I think we, we had such um, a great enthusiasm for what we were doing. We always like put 100% into all the gigs and we'd always had good reviews. And then we went to Germany and we played this one gig, which was absolutely horrendous. We were on after the Moody Blues or something. <laughs> and for some reason they hated us. They didn't like us. I don't know why. And um, for us, that was like shocking, you know, that we couldn't win this audience over. And, and we were just like, this is dreadful. And it, I think it really affected everybody. And after that, it was just like, I don't want to do it anymore. 
And I think we had a couple of singles out that hadn't charted or, I mean, they, they had, but they hadn't done so well. I don't know. Maybe it just ran its course. You know, I think the bands maybe run their course. Yes. Well, I, I sort of realised that, that the fashion changes, you know, that 16 to 18 year old wants their sound or their band. And if a band had been around just for three or four years, it's kind of almost somebody else's thing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. kind of strange because when, yeah. I suppose going back to the 70s, you know, when I remember because I grew up in the countryside, so there wasn't much of it like probably your experience. But I remember when we nothing, got records. There was there, nothing going on. Sheep, lots of sheep. Sheep, cows, we had cows and just fields Cackins, yeah. walking <laughs> in the countryside. But I can remember my brother, sort of, we got a record player in the early 70s and then my brother got a few records and one being Sergeant Pepper by the Beatles, which I thought was quite fantastic. And yeah. loved by two with a track called Good Morning. But then, I, you know, looking back at it, I was thinking, God, the Beatles had only just broken up, but it felt like they were just ancient. So history, yeah. They were so, they were so old. Oh, you know, yeah. and it was interesting. I was talking to Nick Kent, who's a journalist, and he said that he started his career around then. And he said that all the other people who'd been in the kind of game of writing were all still waiting for the Beatles to reform. And he was like, no, they've gone, mate. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, you know so it's, kind of, it's interesting that the next generation come along and immediately the other people just look quite, you know, like dinosaurs. Yeah, I think it's true. It's really true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But yes, yeah, so with that 80s period, I do sort of, you know, this is kind of very basic and probably not 100% correct, but, you know, you had that punk, post-punk, and then the indie world that started with, you know, like the Smiths in about 83. And for five years, indie pop and was really quite a thing. But then when they split up, ecstasy comes along, and then you just get this- Oh, yeah, and it changed need, completely, yeah. Yeah, the music scene, really. Up, you know, and then you had yeah. grunge, and that came along. And then a few years later, you know, by Nirvana's, Nirvana's third album, you know, that's almost like, oh, who cares? We've, you know, we've yeah. had enough again. You no, know, I was lost in the jazz scene by then. I'd gone, that's playing. Yeah. You because, know, it's African music and salsa and jazz, you know, just off the pop scene, didn't want to be part of that because it, it wasn't me, you know, that electro. Well, there electro. was those bands like uh, Working Week and Loose Ends and obviously Sade, who sort of hit yeah, jackpot, yeah. really. So were you kind of immediately going into that kind of cool London vibe, Ronnie Scott? Um, I was, so, you know, I worked for quite a long time with a salsa band called Candela. And we worked all the time, so I was really busy doing that. I had to, I had a child, you know, got involved in that side of things, so I wasn't going out so much, obviously. And um, yeah, and then I got into playing jazz and really, you know, had my own band and released my own CDs and stuff. Yes. And yeah. So yeah, it was um, musically way more interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> <laughs> but absolutely not commercial, you know. And then I'm kind of, uh, oh, I started playing with Hazel O'Connor, I think in that time. And then she went off to LA for a bit. And then she came back and she rang me about 10 years ago. She said, I'm going to call you in a year's time. I want to put a project together with you. And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then a year later, a year later, she rang me. She said, right, we're going to do it now. I said, like, oh, okay. And, and I tour with her a lot now. Yeah. This is true. This is true. But going back to that famous event that happened in 85, which now, mm. so how did you get the gig? <laughs> well, um, I knew Kevin Armstrong, the guitarist, and he was asked to put the band together. Um, and Bowie had said, do you know a sax player? And I think, possibly I was the only one he knew. <laughs> <laughs> 
um just yeah and um anyway so he's just a me and by went oh yeah yeah cool you know and we did like a couple of rehearsals then live aid that <laughs> <laughs> was quite but you know because we were all such bowie fans we knew all the songs we knew how they went so he'd say can we do this one I'm like yeah yeah okay and we just we all knew them so yeah it worked really amazing, well. and he just the sound on that day was brilliant wasn't it because i'd I'd seen the, the Serious Moonlight tour, I'd gone to Milton Keynes for that, and it was all a bit, you know, quite heavy on Earl Slick's guitar, whereas the band he had for Live Aid seemed much more kind of, kind of lighter and somehow a bit more kind of dynamic in a way. Yeah, had um, well, Thomas Dolby was on keyboard, so he was adding his interesting. Then we had percussion as well, didn't we, in backing vocals. And yes, God, they were yeah. very keen, those backing vocalists, weren't they? <laughs> very keen, they were very good. <laughs> Yeah, yes. they were. Well, it was so exciting. It was really exciting. I was going to say, had you had any idea of how, what a big gig that was going to be, by the way? No, um, I think David had said to, to Kevin, he'd said, oh, uh, I've got this charity gig in Wembley that I'd like you to do. That's how he put it to me. So okay, I've got this charity gig in Wembley. Would you, would you be up for doing it? I'm like, would I go up to doing a gig with him? And that was all we knew. We didn't really know. I mean, I don't think I even had a television in those days. So I was really out of contact with everything. And um, we were watching it on the day, but midday, we were watching it all together on the table. Going, we can't be playing there. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, we got flown in by helicopter and the heliport was in Battersea. So we just had to get to Battersea and then you know, it was really weird. And like everywhere you went, everybody had the telly on and the windows open because it was a really hot day. And they were all watching it. It was bizarre. It's like, we're going to be there, we're going there. Yeah. And they have a, a circular stage. So, you know, you'd set up round the back and so you'd all be set up and ready. And the stage would go round and, and there you were in front of the whole world, you know. Yes, a And the rest of the world, and that had never been done before. They never had a concert that went live all over the world. Yes. It so when you did your rehearsals big. before, was that just the band or was that with Bowie as well? Or with you... Bowie, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So how did you cope at that stage going, oh my God, that's David Bowie, stop staring? Or was it, <laughs> were you quite cool there and went? Well, I had been in the Bell Star, so I've been used to like meeting famous people and that's yes. just meeting as people. But he for me that was a bit like, oh Stephen Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he was great. He was really but he's a you know, seasoned pro and he would make you feel at home, make you feel comfortable and kind of just let everybody play, you know what I mean? He he wouldn't dictate to you what you had to play or anything. Yes. And did you cool. have to go through more than those four songs or how did you get to sort of choose those particular ones? I think we tried a few and then he just chose the ones that had come together straight away that were obviously going to work really yeah. easily in front of all those people. Yeah. And then because we had so little rehearsal time, I think, you know, I think from getting the gig to doing it was about a week, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, let's do it now. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you don't have much time to think about it and then it's over. It's like, ooh. So I was waiting for him to go back to his like um, young American phase where he would have saxophone in the band again, but he never did. <laughs> She's no. a bit sad. <laughs> well, it was kind of interesting because during that time he he did Let's Dance. No, yeah, Let's Dance, which was a great yeah. Album. yeah. But then you know the next two were Tonight and Never Let Me Down and um, 
Okay. Yeah, and then he went to Tin Machine. He became yeah, a rock. Yeah. So then so after after that chameleon, <laughs> extraordinary moment. Then, then <laughs> how do you? And then obviously the Bell Stars are finished. Is it the case that you then just on the sort of live circuit, sort of playing with? Um, yeah, I think I played with the Communards. I did some some touring with them and just various other bands, lots of bands, and and just yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember after that. More children entered the picture. <laughs> yes, well, it's quite it's quite hard to keep the gig together because because most of the people I think most quite you know, I haven't got a percentage on this, but you know they do the leaving and then they think right I need to get a job and then decades or years later they they sort of get a little bit back into music, but to try and keep that going is is no I always kept it going. Yeah, I was doing gigs when you know the baby would be in the side room and I'd be playing saxophone, rushing back in. You know, back on stage again it was mental a bit, bit mental but I never really stopped playing yeah yes so, that's amazing and did your did your actual playing change much over that period because obviously because I remember in the 80s we all went to see Courtney Pine didn't we because we thought we were oh yeah yeah and the Bungie Boys obviously but that's just because we were just obsessed with John Peel and everything he played and just being very right on I just wondered if you'd sort of over over the decades started to get into different kind of Oh, definitely. Well, I think I've always been into jazz, actually. I've always been into jazz. So playing the saxophone is obviously a jazz instrument, right? So yes. if you play, so you're going to be interested, surely. Um, so I was always just working on my playing, practicing and, you know, trying to work out how they did it. How did they do this? Yeah. <laughs> but I never really had, I mean, I, you know, I learned from other people. Really. I didn't have a formal musical education. So when you got the call from Hazel and she said, because I saw her probably 20 odd years ago when she was doing, I think she decided to bring her career back. I seem to remember, I did an interview with her and she said she'd been in Edinburgh and saw someone performing and then at the end, they just got their suitcase of merchandise and started selling it. And she was like, hmm, is that what yeah. you <laughs> Hazel, it's this or, I don't know, you know, get another job. It's our obscurity or <laughs> poverty. <laughs> so I think she created the, the breaking glass kind of as a, a story using the heart. The show, yeah, that's background. right. Yeah. So I remember that was fantastic. So when you when you got the call and said, look, let's do a project, what's, um, is this the sort of going through her sort of greatest hits? Um, well, no, because we had, uh, she wanted to do an acoustic project. She'd been working with Cormac de Barra and she'd done a lot, she was living in Ireland by then. And she'd done a lot of Irish folk music and she'd done some beautiful things. But I think Cormac then got busy doing something. Um, or maybe, yeah, he was in Ireland and she was in England. So she wanted to form a band with myself and a keyboard player. Um, and the three of us, we, we sing harmonies together and it's just it's a really nice gig but well, we do a lot of the old songs but in in a very acoustic way yes and that's um, and, because i think you've been to bungie fisher theater haven't you yeah that's many funny. times actually <laughs> and she, she she sort of likes that kind of size venue because she likes to tell stories you know and and she wraps the audience up and sort of brings them along with her on this journey and and it's uh, yeah it's a really great a great evening yeah and we have done loads of gigs but you know when you work with the same people you get a really strong bond and um so yeah we we were doing great until covid came along <laughs> and how's that, that year and how's the year been because I, I spoke to i think hank wang said just around the time when it 
the first month and he just got an album out and was like, and he was really low. He was like really low. Anybody who just kind of were, had the album and a tour planned were just feeling really depressed. Other people who were hoping to, um, well, not hoping, but had planned to have a bit of a quiet year were like, oh, this is quite handy. I can just get on with it. <laughs> it was a shock, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and no, we had, lo- we had loads of work. We had a tour lined up in March, I think. Oh, yeah, right right the day of lockdown or something was supposed to start. And then we had another tour as a double headline with Toya, which was going to be the following month. So we had a pile of gigs and then more in October, November. Um, they all went out the window to the next year, which is this year. And now they've all gone out the window again till next year. So, um, yeah, it's quite a, interesting. But I don't care, I'm just practising, you know. And, um, yeah. And are you doing any kind of collaborations during this period as well? Oh, well, we, I also have been working with Mike Garson, you know, the piano player from Aladdin Sane. Oh my God, yes, Mike. Yes, uh, so I was doing some gigs with him, again, very acoustic, uh, with a singer called Simon Westbrook. And um, that was a really brilliant project, which I enjoyed doing so much. And we had more gigs with that lined up, but that never happened. And um yeah, so out of that, anyway, we, we, we formed a new project called Beyond Bowie, or Bowie and Beyond, I'm not sure which way around it is. But, um, so that's with Terry Edwards and Simon Westbrook singing and Paul Cudford on guitar. And uh, so that's maybe my next gig, and that's going to be in October at Pizza Express. Lovely. <laughs> okay, so that's, yeah, so I've seen some of the, those kind of evenings and events. Which yeah, and that's really just fun. playing Bowie tunes, but in a different, very much different way, you know, obviously. <laughs> yeah, and what's it like, kind of, when you have to collaborate, not have to, but, you know, when you choose to collaborate and you sort of walk into that space and room and think, blimey, you know, because obviously, you know, dynamics and people, is it, that? do you sort of get the fear or does it sort of all... No, it was really exciting. It was really exciting and everyone, we just, you know, thought it was going to be great and we really enjoyed doing it. Um, and so, yeah, the bands came out of that project with Mike um, because we all got on so well together and we, we all enjoyed working together. And it, yeah. we just meshed as a unit. It just, it just felt right. Um, so the promoter said, yeah, I'm loving this band. I'm going to you know, put you on tour. So <laughs> That's who knows? That may happen yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking September onwards, it's going to be... Yeah, October. We, we, we definitely have these pizza dates. I think there may be a couple more. Yeah. you know dates are spun around that hopefully fingers yeah. crossed that's quite interesting so with Mike I mean he's normally based in LA so is he just yeah. able to just squeeze over sit at the piano and just do the business well I, I don't know he was he's got his other bigger project which is Bowie Celebration um which is really interesting and I've I've guested with them when they were in London I'd play a few numbers on saxophone which was great very exciting and uh, so they did quite well and they tour all over. And he also did a, a big video, video concert, internet concert in, um, yes. in January, yeah, which I was part of, which was hilarious because he had to, um, he would send like a really rough backing track with no counting or anything. And, and you'd have to play your part over it. And then you'd have to film yourself. So like I had, a, you know, all my kids in the house putting up, black backdrops and helping me film it it was quite funny but um we all caught covid at that time <laughs> so you can see by the end of it we're all like <laughs> <laughs> if you look closely you'll see my face going 
<laughs> yeah, so it's very exciting because that was all ex Bowie, particularly the work with David Bowie, you know, it's all alumni, of which there are many. And then he threw in some that weren't alumni but were younger. And <laughs> I don't know. There was just so many people involved in that concert, like 300 or something like that. I didn't, I didn't sort of sign up all by the ticket, but I think suddenly I saw a notice saying, oh, it's been delayed by 24 hours. By the yeah, and it just was delayed by 24 hours. And I thought, oh, it's not going to happen. And then it happened. You know? And then it happened. So yeah. I don't know what happened. <laughs> That must have been a bit of a strange. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of interesting that they, these kind of experiments people have been doing. With, yeah, know, it looked great actually. If you saw any of it, they they told you how to light yourself when you were filming yourself, and it really looked like you were all on stage together. They did it really well. I think they're going to put it out uh, as a, like a video DVD or uh, he was talking about vinyl, putting it out on vinyl. I'm like, you lose all the visual if you put it on vinyl, but hey, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what he's going to do with it, um, quite but I think it will be seen again. <laughs> so when you, I mean, keeping with that sort of Bowie thing, when you heard his last album, which was um, Dark Star, I mean, obviously oh. he, he he has his kind of, he really gets into his jazz world at this stage. Yeah, Donnie McCaslin has played saxophone with him, and uh, I went to see Donnie McCaslin because of that, obviously, at the Jazz Cafe, and a sort of like early afternoon performance for £10 or something. And it was the most amazing show. I absolutely loved it. I loved his, all his band. And they were all on the album, in fact, all his band. But uh, I thought it was wonderful that, because did you see that exhibition that was on at um, South Kensington? The, where was it on there? One was of the DNA one, David Bowie is. <laughs> yeah, where I mean, it had all the album covers and all his costumes and bits of video and stuff. And if you went to that, you saw that right, right the way through, he had had this interest in jazz, always in the back of what he did, which, you know, and obviously playing saxophone as well. But um, it was interesting that as he came towards the end, that was where he went because it's more abstract, you know. And there's a wonderful bit on the album where he's singing and singing and, and then the saxophone just takes over and it lifts. It's just so moving. <laughs> it's such a I love that. Yes, that, yeah, that yeah. must have, um, yeah, you must have felt good to know that he'd really stuck with the jazz after all these yeah. decades that it was. Well, yeah, he was really getting into it and working with Maria Schneider. He yeah. was amazing, you know. Yeah, I love the stuff he did with her. Oh but I, I like um, also that he'd asked her to do an, an album with him and she said, oh, David, I'm far too busy. I'm recording with my band and doing this and that. So I've got to go and work with Donnie, you know, work with Donnie. <laughs> yes, well, I love the fact that he went to see, you know, Donnie in New York somewhere and thought, oh, right, yeah. I'll just quickly ask, do you, do you fancy being in my band? Just I'm, ask him. I've always, <laughs> I've always been amazed at how he's managed to sort of find such incredible musicians to work with. Well, because they're there, they're there, and they're not necessarily well known, but they're just, wherever you look, there's amazing musicians all, all over the world in England, yeah. millions of them, you know, really incredible people you've never heard of. So it's a very rich scene. He was just very good at picking out the right people, I think. With a good you, you pick personalities as well, you know? Yeah. You pick you for what you bring to his project. You know, he's just like working with loads of different people. Creating all these soundscapes. Really. Did you feel was that quite amazing seeing that exhibition at the VMA? David Bowie. It was really interesting. Um, yeah, because if you look at all his album covers, 
every single one was a, like a miniature work of art you know they just looked so beautiful when they put them all together it's like yeah they really are all amazing you know it's fantastic yeah and the costumes as well it was really really great to see them i mean he was always interested in art and fashion wasn't he and obviously very very multi-talented person i was so lucky yeah. i picked david and not gary glitter you know, my oh god yeah <laughs> But it, I, I wouldn't thought, be here if I thought we go. What was quite interesting was that I went to see, I missed the Pink Floyd one, but I saw the, there was a Rolling Stones one that I went to see an exhibition because obviously people went, oh, this is a good idea, you know. For the yeah, yeah. And though, you know, I thought the Stones had some amazing albums, you know, big, big, big on me, but I just realised that their album covers were a bit rubbish. They're sort of, it's a bit of a similar, samey kind of thing, apart from it gets kind of really classic mm. in the late 60s and early 70s when... Mick Taylor's on guitar as well. And then it's just like, oh, blimey, you know, it's not great. Whereas David, even if it was difficult, his drum and bass period, and, and obviously some of the stuff in the 80s. Yeah. You know, it, it was quite amazing or brilliant. And yeah, yeah, it was quite artistic, very yeah. explorative, yeah. You know, the fashion, the clothes, the style, you know. It, I mean, I did, you know, I have to confess, I have a bit of an obsession with Bowie. So I've been doing lots of interviews with various people who've worked with him. So, you know. Yeah, so yeah. So I even tracked down Candy, who was who played in you know the man who fell to earth, and then Ava Cherry, who'd um you know like worked with him on Young Americans, and it was just like hearing how he put all that together and all the work he did, you know, in these different bits. It's just like God, that's quite something, you know. That was like it is quite boggling. So um yeah. Yeah, he was always really busy, really busy the whole time. I think his life was just a work of art, you know. Well, I suppose in the 70s, he did roughly 10 albums in 10 years, produced various other people's albums, which were like Lou Reed and Izzy Pop, then relocated several times, did major world tours, had various yeah, yeah. relationships, which some, well, they ended badly. And you're thinking, that's quite a lot, actually. And yeah. Amazing cocaine. Always moving. He was always moving. That was what was interesting about him, I think. He was really moving. So look, because you've you've one of the great survivors in music, which is fantastic. Big survivor. I know. Well, like I said, most people, they, they do the music and then they just get another job and they sort of like pretend at work that they weren't ever in that band, a bit like some biblical story, really. And then you know they they come back and <laughs> they only like, get another job because they can't carry on in music. You know, it's so difficult in this. I country. think they're so heartbroken and traumatized by that five years. So, what would you if you could have said something to a say a sixteen or eighteen year old self? starting out in you know that you've just learned over the decades if there's something that you would just say actually there's a couple of pointers or things that you say definitely do this but I wouldn't or focus on that I just wondered if there was anything like that um well what I would say is that the people who survive in music tend to have more than one skill so for example I play saxophone or three saxophones soprano alto tenor clarinet flute piano and I sing and also write songs so you know I think you need seven or eight different skills <laughs> lots of people do production you know and songwriting yes. and yeah uh, so you need a variety of skills and then that way you can survive I think yeah so whatever's happening you can be employing one of those skills so at the minute I do a bit of teaching online you know and uh, still doing writing playing a lot yeah, practicing a lot. But the um, thing about being a musician is you always want to play and you always want to practice. So, and on the writing front, <laughs> is that a process that you enjoy doing yourself? I really like that. That's the most rewarding. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. So I've written stuff with the Bell Stars. I was writing for them. Written a lot of stuff with Hazel. Actually, we've had three albums out with the three of us on, which we've written stuff on. And yeah, I've always been writing stuff. You prefer collaboration than than trying to just. I do actually. I think I think I've realised that that's good for me. I like having someone to bounce ideas off. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and with the Bell Stars, obviously that must have been quite a sort of a moment in, in that. Do you still sort of keep in touch with the, the other members or have you just all gone? Yeah, yeah, we're all in touch. Yeah, we know where we all are. You know, we know who's a grandma now. <laughs> 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 who's doing really well in makeup. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, everybody's doing really well actually. That's an amazing story, isn't it? To have those kind of moments, a bit like you know, just to, to, to catch, catch us. I suppose it's like catch the wind, isn't it? I think that's yeah, well, we, we have had one of our songs that's been used in a, an adver advertising campaign that says, oh gosh, isn't it? In America, it was for Samsung Galaxy and they used Ico Ico on that. So that's been a lot of fun for us, really. I think everyone in America is sick of hearing it now. <laughs> And do you still get any little kind of oh, 70 pound royalty checks a year? Or is that just maybe it? occasionally, yes. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> the occasional taste. <laughs> yeah, which is really nice. Yeah. Considering we lived off 70 pounds a week <laughs> for all that time. <laughs> uh, the old, yeah, no, that's Look. cool. <laughs> and that, dear listener, will be the end of the interview. The rest is just babbling away to say goodbye but anyway a massive thank you to Claire Hurst for giving me the time for that interview this has been David Eastall the CD6 show if you want to contact me for some exciting and random reason make it nice though you can on Facebook Twitter Instagram just do C86 show and also these have all been archived you can find those on Spotify iTunes Podbean there you go have a great week stay safe <laughs>